I'll just speak very loudly. Uh, before I begin, I just want to say a couple words, uh, really words of thank you. Um, thank you for having me here. It has been a tremendously joyful and wonderful three weeks. Um, I, uh, I've said this a couple times now, but I always said, like, I have a special place in my heart for the table because, yeah, it's, uh, if I had ever planted my own church, I'm not a church planter, I would have probably would have called it the table because my wife and I, we believe not in building higher fences, but building a longer table, right? And I feel like that's what you guys really embody. Um, my wife Sharon is here this morning. Um, we just celebrated nine years, so not 22. Um, we're catching up, though. Um, so nine years of marriage. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let, let me also offer some encouragement. Uh, I really love this church. It, is, it really is a fantastic church. You know, if you are looking for a church where, where Jesus Christ is proclaimed, this is it. If you're looking for a church that's really diverse, many people from different walks of life, different various ages, this is it. If you're looking for a church that is deeply involved in each, in each other's lives, this is it. This, if you're looking for a church that cares for the world, that cares for the city, that actually borrows and let, well, you, let, uh, lends their time and their energy to caring for people in need, then this is it, right? Um, if you're looking for people who aren't afraid of the mess and are okay with being vulnerable with one another, then this is it. Um, what you guys have here is very, very special. So I want to commend you all, but also I want to commend and praise God for gathering you all together. So um, actually, before I kind of jump into this sermon, I would love to just pray for you guys. I offer yet another pastoral prayer, if you don't mind. Um, please, please join me in prayer. Dear God, we give you all praise and glory. Um, thank you that in this church, in the table, you have gathered people who don't have it all together, that are messy, but at the same time, that they know where wisdom and might come from, that they come from you, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have gathered this community together to serve one another, to love each other, and that means loving each other in really, truly thick, thick and thin. And God, we just pray that you would continue to gather people here, gather people here who aren't necessarily like-minded, but who want to worship you who want to experience community and the spirit in ways are, that are just bigger than and that we can even imagine. God, we, I said this uh, many months ago that the best is yet to come, and I still firmly believe that today, that the best is yet to come for this church because who wouldn't want to partake in a place where people can be authentic and genuine and vulnerable and sharing lives with one another? So God, grow this church in faith, in health, in unity, Go it in numbers as well. Thank you, Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so thanks for joining me in that. Um, today is part three of a trilogy of uh, going through Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, two weeks ago, I made the case that if there was an era of biblical history that we modern-day people who should most resonate with, it would be this era of Daniel and the Israelites spending in exile, that they've lost their sense of selves. They are surrounded by Babylon, surrounded by assimilationist pressures, surrounded by pressures not just out there, but also like in here, this, this pressure to be, to, to say that says that you matter only if you're young, you matter only if you're well-educated, you matter if you're a certain type of nobility. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar today, that you matter... If you're young, if you're well-educated, if you have a certain job, if you own a home, that's, that's why we can resonate with this era. Um, 
So the Israelites in Babylon faced this mountain of assimilationist pressures, and they were put in exile because they forgot who they were. They forgot that they were the people of God. They were the people of God who forgot that they were the people of God. They were worshiping idols. They were, their way, the way that they worshiped God was less about who God was and more about who they wanted God to be. Um, and so that's, we, these are lessons that we can resonate with and we should be asking ourselves and reminding ourselves constantly, remember who we are and whose we are. That's kind of been the theme of all three of these sermons. Uh, last week we talked about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he enters the stage. He was this man of tremendous might, but he was also a tyrant. He was full of rage. He would threaten people's lives, but he also had the power to take their lives. But he was also tremendously insecure, and that whew, makes him truly dangerous because you have no idea how he's going to act. You have no idea how he's going to use his power. Well, today in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar doing Nebuchadnezzar type of things. He's going to try to assimilate his entire empire, get them to worship this giant golden idol, and he threatens to do it with his might and his power. So we're going to see that. And as we read this chapter along together, it's a long one, yet another long chapter, um, but I want to train you to think about um, the rhythms and the cadences that are, that are present in this particular chapter. There's so much repetition going on here, and it's kind of purposeful. And I'll talk about that um, after we read it together. So please read along with me, Daniel chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> all right, here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dira in the, in the province of Babylon, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, uh, the, the, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebu- King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the hail proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that whenever you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at, the same, at, the, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, these were the same Chaldeans who Daniel, Daniel rescued in chapter 2, right? Um, the Chaldeans declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the, pro- of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, 
lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> okay, so in theme, this, this, this um, passage is actually very scary, right? Being threatened to uh, be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. But in an actual reading of this passage, it's kind of fun. There's a lot of like wonderful repetition here. There's a lot of like, like did, you, did you feel the rhythms and the cadences that were going on here? How many times were the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, etc. were repeated? Like four times, right? And you know, uh, parchment and, and scripture, like scrolls, it, it's not cheap, right? It's like, so, so, so to write all of this over and over and over again, there's a purpose behind that, right? And so what this chapter, really to take it one step back, is, is what this chapter is all about is, is idolatry just worshiping an image that has been created by a king, by someone else. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, he is kind of a genius. He's very dastardly. He's wanting, he's wanting to assimilate his entire empire to worship this one idol, right? And he comes up with a very interesting plan. He wants to mesmerize people. He wants to hypnotize people, to seduce, to entice them through this kind of mesmerizing rhythm. That's kind of why the, the, this passage just keeps repeating over and over and over, over again. It's like through reading this passage, you're getting a sense of the tactic that Nebuchadnezzar is using. He's using this mesmerizing rhythm. And you know what? Um, you know who else is really good at this? <clears throat> uh, schools. Schools are really good at this. So earlier this week, I texted a whole bunch of you, uh, what was the mascot of your, um, of your college or your high school and I want to, um, some of you, a lot of you res- responded, I, I, I want to try a little exercise. I, uh, I'm going to count to three, and I'm, we're, we're going to say together, go blanks, right? I, I want you to fill in the blank with your college or high school mascot. If you don't want to talk about the college or high school math- mascot, talk about, say, the dubs or something else, right? Like, so on three, right? So go blanks. We're going to fill in the blanks with your mascot. So one, two, three, go. Quakers. Quakers. Any, any Quakers in here? Um, the Quakers was my, uh, was my college mascot. Um, I call ourselves the, the fighting Quakers, right? Um, but how many times have I said, go Quakers, right? Because I've gone to sporting events. You know, I've gotten this kind of like school, uh, school spirit. Some of you said Huskies or Bears or Scarlet Knights or Buffs or Longhorns or Eagles or Tigers or Paladins, I guess. The Furman Paladins. That's a great mascot. Um, just as good as the Quakers. Um, but you know, like that, like that was not the first time you said that, right? It wasn't for the first time you said go Knights or go Bears or whatever, right? Because... Why? Why? Because the schools that you've gone to are really good at tricking you into getting you to think, to hypnotizing you, to mesmerizing you, to enticing you, to seduce you into having spirit for your school, to love your school. And you know what? What really helps is having a band, 
Right? Having a band helps. That, and Nebuchadnezzar knows this. Why? The, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, etc. And so schools, what do they do? They, 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 make, you use, uh, they make you learn their fight songs. Right? So the, one of the first things you do in, in the first year of college is you have to learn the fight song of your college. So the best fight songs are played with music, but the even, the even greater fight songs are actually the ones that have motions to them. And so my college, we have a fight song and has motions, and I'll, 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 let me perform this for you. Ready? So the University of Pennsylvania fight song goes like this. It goes, um, hurrah, hurrah, Pennsylvania. This is a horrible song. Um, <laughs> hurrah for the red and the blue. Hurrah, 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 hurrah for the red and blue. Okay, so I'm not a good singer, not a good fight song, but I learned this, and I just start doing this. Every time I hear the word hurrah, right, I just start thinking in my head, and I just start doing this. I just start doing this over and over and over again. It just, you know, I get mindlessly, I do this. And, but do you see how that works? Do you, do you see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing? Let's play a certain song. Let's play a certain kind of music. Let's play the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe. And every time you hear the music, you're supposed to bow down, right? He's tricking you, enticing you, mesmerizing you, hypnotizing you, seducing you, assimilating you to, to do a certain type of thing, to bow down to this giant idol. And the purpose of this is to get you to think a certain way, to feel a certain way, to believe a certain thing, to do something. We are surrounded by mesmerizing rhythms in our life, you know, and this kind of tactic is not just Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the best advertisers, the best marketers, the best influencers know to use this tactic. Think about it. In, in just a few, actually, in a shorter time than we think, um, Christmas music is on its way, right? At some point, you know that 96.5 KOIT is going to switch all the programming to nothing but Christmas music, right? Or at some point, you're going to go into some stores in September, and you're going to hear Christmas music. Why? to trick you, to hypnotize you, to entice you, to mesmerize you, to do something. And in this particular case, they are mesmerizing you to get into the Christmas spirit, to get you to basically get into the gift-giving spirit or the consumerist spirit. They are tricking you to spend your money in their stores. And this kind of mesmerizing rhythm has been instilled in us since we were children. And also, it's not, it doesn't just come from advertisers, it also just comes from parents. Right, so a good friend of mine, uh, Patrick, he went to the University of Washington. He's got a lot of University of Washington school spirit. Like he wears like University of Washington polo shirts. He's got the hat. He knows the song. It goes uh, like "Bow Down to Washington" is the name of the song. But he's also instilled. He's instilled this song and indoctrinated his own son. His own seven-year-old son will go into the living room once in a while and just randomly just so he'll just say uh, he'll go into the living room. He'll just march in. He'll, just, he'll say "Bow down to Washington." And then this little seven-year-old, right? He's been mesmerized, hypnotized, and chased, right? Drink a Kool-Aid. Well, what else is another type of rhythm that has been instilled in us since I was a kid? Well, you know, every, when I was growing up, when my, ki- uh, when my parents were talking to me about what I wanted to do in the future, uh, about why I should go to school, what kind of college I should go to, they, they had a specific rhythm. They only believed in three types of jobs. Doctor, lawyer, businessman. Right? Every time we talk this conversation, doctor, lawyer, businessman, doctor, lawyer, businessman. 
right? And my parents were just hypnotized, mesmerized into thinking that those were the only three legitimate jobs out there in the world. The only three jobs that actually make good money. And, you know, this is really funny because my older brother, he went to Johns Hopkins University. He decided to study computer science. And he had to have a very difficult conversation with my parents, convincing them that computer science was a legitimate major. That him studying that would lead to him having actually a well-paying job. My parents did not know this. They were hypnotized by what they thought were the only three jobs, doctor, lawyer, businessman. But it's a little bit more nefarious than that. We, I think we all do this. Um, you know, we teach our kids that they need to get good grades. Why? So they can get into a good college. Why? So they can learn a fight song. Um, why? So that they can get a good job. Why? So they can make money to raise a family. Why? So that they can have kids who would then get good grades, go to a good college, learn a fight song, get a good job, and raise their family. Right? That is the mesmerizing rhythm that we have instilled, that our entire society, the entire world instills in in children. But you know what? Maybe, just maybe, it might not be as true as we think. That that system, that cycle, might not be the right cycle of success. Because the reality is, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that 45% of college grads are underemployed that they are working in jobs that do not match their level of skill or their level of education. In other words, the most common job for a new college grad is not an engineer, is not going into med school, is not working in, in business or being, a law, or being a lawyer. The most common job is working in a coffee shop. That that is the stark reality of going to college, that you might spend all the time in school getting good grades to work in a coffee shop. Now, it's not true forever, right? And I, I'm not saying that that one cycle is a, is a bad cycle, but maybe there are other ways to get good jobs that we haven't thought of. Okay, so we are mesmerized by, from, at birth from, as children. We mesmerize our children. Um, why are we so prone to being mesmerized? Uh, Well, to quote John Calvin, he says this. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That ever since sin has entered into mankind, that we fall into worshiping idols and we make new new, new and more idols for ourselves. That we trade in the creator God for things that have been created. We'd rather worship a golden statue that has been created by a king as opposed to the creator himself. So the truth is, why are we so prone to being mesmerized? It's not just because we're easily seduced, it's because we want to be seduced. We all fall into this. We all belong in basically an idolaters anonymous. We all wrestle with this. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, according to St. Augustine, what you love, you become. What you love, you become. This is the danger of falling into these uh, worshiping kind of idols, rhythms. Or the author, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he put it this way. He says, what you worship, you become. The more time you are mesmerized, hypnotized, seduced, enticed by something, you become it. So how does that play out? Think about your everyday rhythms, your everyday routines of your everyday life. If I were to take a video of the past week of my life, what would my routines point out that I love? Well, let's see. Every morning, I, I wake up, I hit the alarm, I brush my teeth, I make some coffee, and then I go to work. 
right? Wake up, hit the alarm, brush my teeth, make some coffee, go to work every morning. And then after work, I get home from work, I shut the door, I put on sweatpants, and I turn on Netflix, right? Get home from work, shut the door, put on sweatpants, turn on Netflix. So if these are the activities I do the most in my life, then what, does I, what do I love? Well, I love coffee, sweatpants, and Netflix, right? Where does God fit in? If God is not in the small moments, how can I expect God to be in the big moments? If I don't make space for God in the small moments, how can I expect him to be with me in the big, mo- in the big moments? Uh, the, another author, Annie Dillage, he says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Or to quote um, Paul Tripp, a professor at Westminster Seminary, he says, he says, your life is not made up of big moments, but of small, mundane moments. If God doesn't rule in your mundane moments, then he doesn't rule you because we live in the mundane moments. My own everyday rhythmic routines show that God does not live as much in my life as I, as I want him to, as I need him to. And the fact of the matter is, I don't need a king like King Nebuchadnezzar to trick me, to force me not to worship God. The reality is I'm pretty good at not worshiping God on my own. But then there's another danger about these rhythmic, mesmerizing routines. We can get so easily hooked by them. King Nebuchadnezzar is a predator, and predators understand the power of rhythms and routines. They understand how easy that we, it is for us to be taken captive. So here's, here's an example. Um, last week I talked about Steve Jobs and I kind of bashed Apple a little bit. Um, I'm going to bash Apple a little bit more. I'm looking right at right right now. I'm sorry. This is, the, this is the guy. These are the company that pays your bills. Um, but time. I mean, Apple, they are genius marketers, right? Genius marketers, but they're also predators, right? They're so good at developing these rhythms into getting you to buy their products. Well, you know what they do? Every year they have the big release, the big release of the latest iPhone, the latest MacBook. But they have a rhythm, right? They have their big release, but they also have the, they also have the announcement of when the big release is going to happen. And they, even before that, they have the announcement of the announcement of when the big release is going to happen. And they've done this, right? They do this every single year. And they've tricked you. They've hypnotized you. They've enticed you. They've mesmerized you into buying their products. And you know what? I'm going to bash Apple just a little bit more. I, I feel like every, every new iPhone, every new MacBook, all they're really doing is changing the plug, right? That's all they do. Right? And like, you know, and only, only with Apple, like, yeah, right? Only with Apple, they, 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 you have someone say something like, uh, you know, I have, I have the new MacBook, but not the new, new MacBook. So you got to find a different plug for that, right? Um, but what do they do? They have driven up a huge fervor. Apple spirit, right? Like everyone goes to these big releases and they, have to, they feel like they have to buy the latest and the greatest, the newest version. And you know what? They're also a little bit tricky, right? They, they purposely slow down the old versions of the iPhone so they force you to buy the new ones, right? They, they're predators and they've hooked you. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you're an Apple fan, you start saying, I have got to buy the newest one. But the problem is once you have to, then they've got you. Once you have to, then they've got you. Once you have to buy something, once you have to do a certain thing, then you are hooked by them. They've got you. There are so many things that we are so easily hooked by beyond Apple products. There are subtle things like retail therapy 
or social media or various technologies. You know, I've got to check how many likes my last post got. How many times we click on our phone? I think apparently it's upwards to 2,400 times a day to we just touch our phones. There are more hazardous things that we can be hooked by. Very real addictions to sex or alcohol or drugs and other substances. These are things that hook us. But then there are like even bigger, more meta things. There are various isms we can be hooked by. We can be hooked by consumerism, materialism, classism, racism. Maybe America is also hooked by capitalism. There are good things that we can be hooked by. We can be hooked on work. How many of us are workaholics? Or maybe we're not workaholics, but we can be hooked on play and entertainment. That we spend too much time entertaining ourselves, too much time at play, and not enough time at work. What are you hooked by? If I gave you even just 30 seconds, I'm sure there's something that you know that you have to do. You can point to something that has hooked you, that has eaten away at your life. There is a very real danger and cost to being hooked by these kind of mesmerizing rhythms that take our everyday routines. Uh, I'm just going to share a quote-unquote safe idolatry that I've had in the past, a, a, uh, like a Safeway idolatry versus a Louis Vuitton you know, designer idolatry. Um, I'm going to talk about a video game. I am someone who is easily addicted to video games. So a while ago, I was playing this one game called Hearthstone, and it is an online card game, kind of like Magic the Gathering, but it's online. You're playing against all these strangers all across the world. If you don't know Magic the Gathering, it's basically chess, but instead of using pieces, you're using collectible cards. And I'm playing this game online, and you know, it's technically one of those free games, right? But over the course of three years, I spent over $200 on this game. <coughs> so they hooked me into spending my money. Um, that's not the real cost. The money was not the real cost. The real cost was the time I spent. Now, Hearthstone, they were, the makers of Hearthstone, they were geniuses. They knew not to keep track of how many games you played, but they did keep track of how many wins you've had. So over the course of three years, I had 8,265 wins. 8,265 wins. And I I was a good player. I was in the top 0.2% of the world. And so I had a win rate of about 60%. A win rate of about 60%. So that meant of 8,265 wins with a 60% win rate means I played 13,775 games on average, roughly. Now, these games, only eight minutes a game. That was the average. Eight minutes a game. Just eight minutes, eight minutes, eight minutes. Eight minutes a game times times 13,775 games equals 110,200 minutes or 1,000. 836 hours, or 76.5 24-hour days I spent playing this game in three years. It was so simple, so subtle. Eight minutes a game, eight minutes a game, just one more game, one more game, one more game. How we spend our minutes is how we spend our hours. How we spend our hours is how we spend our days. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And I was hooked. And it took a toll on me. It affected my work. It affected me. But it also it affected my family. <sighs> being hooked sucks away your life. The cost of being hooked is your life. And here's a very real danger about this. I want to quote Sharon Hirsch. She's an author who wrote a book called The Last Addiction. 
uh, why self-help is not enough. She says this about addictions. She says, I have witnessed the sobering reality that addiction is stronger than human love. Powerful natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes do not compel fathers and mothers to abandon their children. But addiction does. Natural disasters do not cause parents to abandon their children, but addiction, being hooked on the subtle routines, does cause parents to abandon their children. The cost of being hooked by the wrong things is your life. It is like a thief. It steals your life away from you. But thank God that we have John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says this. Jesus says, the thief, steals only to steal. the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Being hooked steals your life, but Jesus gives you life. The reality is all of us are probably hooked on something. We all belong in Idolaters Anonymous. But if you want to live the unhooked life, if you want to be free, then you need to realize that we are not able to free ourselves. You're not able to free yourself from your addictions, from the things that you have hooked you. You have to be set free. In verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who will deliver you? He is overreaching. He's saying that even the gods cannot deliver you from my hand, and he is so wrong. He is so wrong because he does not know the power of the Lord. He does not know the power and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The greatest hook that we are all hooked by is our own sin. The sinfulness in us, in every single person. But you can be forgiven. You can be set free because of what Jesus has done. And in order to be set free, it took God taking on flesh, having his feet touch earth and his body ravaged, being crucified on the cross so that you could be set free, so that you can be unhooked from sin. Think of all the people whom Jesus has encountered and he has set free. Think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She, has, she, she is an adulteress. The whole town knows it. But after encountering Jesus, she goes right up to the townspeople, free of shame, free of guilt. She says, I have met a man who told me everything, every single thing that I have done. But he has, she has so much confidence because she has an encounter with Jesus. Think about the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 who was shackled because he was so tormented by the things that he had been hooked by. And then Jesus meets with him, and then people come, and they see this man Restored, sitting there in his, in his right mind again. Think about the Apostle Paul. Back when his name was Saul, he was an oppressor of Christians. He was hooked by classism. He thought Christians were beneath him, and he murdered them. But after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was set free of all of that and became a champion of Christianity. We, too, need an encounter with Jesus. If you want to be set free, Meet with Christ. Let's look at Daniel's friends. King Nebuchadnezzar is literally trying to take away their lives. He is threatening them. And then Daniel's friends, they come up in verse 16. They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
Do you see the boldness? Do you see the confidence? This is a confidence that only comes from having an unhooked life, from being set free. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, we are free from you. We don't need to give you a defense or even explain why we're not going to bow down. Now, they say that God might deliver us or he might not, but it doesn't matter. We are free from Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to bow down and worship this idol. If you are here this morning as someone who has been mesmerized, hypnotized, seduced, enticed, if you've been trapped, if you are hooked, then you need to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar He's not a neutral force. He is, you're in his house. He's there breathing down your neck. But the beauty and the truth of the gospel is that you are free. You are free from this giant rage monster that wants to steal your life. So what do we do? How do we live in this freedom? How do we, how do we get this freedom? Where, does we, where do we get this kind of courage? Um, well, it starts with knowing who you are and whose you are. It starts with this whole theme of, of, of Daniel. Know who you are and whose you are, that you belong to God. But also the courage, it doesn't come just in the big moments. It's built in small moments. Think back in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends committed to the small mundane act of eating vegetables and water. Everyday routines that reminded them that they belong to God. In Daniel chapter 2, we see Daniel and his life of prayer. He spends time praying to God in the mundane act of prayer. He can actually connect to God. So we need to build new routines, routines of worship in particular. Church worship can be a wonderful, mesmerizing routine. Every Sunday, we come to church, we are called to worship, we sing praises, we hear the word, we partake in the table, and we receive a benediction. Every Sunday, called to worship, sing praises, hear the word, partake in the table, receive a benediction. It's a wonderful routine that I need you to continue to live into. And the point of this routine is every Sunday that you come here, you are restored, and that shall launch you in to Monday through Saturday. What we do in here should have rippling effects when we go out there. We like to sing catchy songs, right? We like to sing because we have been set free by our Redeemer. So let me ask you, what is your church fight song? What is the song that you want to continue to sing to you? Maybe do some motions too, but that you'll have stuck in your head on Monday, on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, when you're tired, when you're driving 3,000 miles, <laughs> you know? What's the song that you want to have stuck in your head? Maybe it's a song like, Holy, 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 or It Is Well With My Soul, or In Christ Alone. Christians, we sing because we have been set free. And that wonderful act of singing, of worshiping, is that wonderful routine that helps us resist all the other assimilationist, mesmerizing routines out there in the world. Let me end with this. John 8, verse 36. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Let me, let me close in prayer. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we have to confess that we are just surrounded by oceans and mountains of assimilationist pressure. So there are so many mesmerizing, hypnotizing, enticing, seducing routines out there and rhythms that just really try to eat away at our life. Whether it be spending seconds, minutes, hours of a day on our phones or the rhythms and routines of thinking that we need to run the rat race that society tells us.
Some of us here this morning, we are hooked by substances. We are hooked by our own natures. We are hooked in spending, spending things that will just eat away at our lives. But Lord, if that is us here this morning, set us free. Give us that life and life to the full, that life abundant that only comes through Jesus Christ, from drinking deep from the well that is the living well of water. Thank you, Jesus, that you have set us free that you died so that we can be set free from sin, and may we be people who truly live into that freedom every single day of our lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.